Let's turn to Romans 8, please. Romans 8. We're coming to, well, we're at least in the home stretch of studying the book of Romans. This is the 133rd increment. Don't forget there's a ladies' prayer and snack time. Some of you guys don't sneak in there just for the snacks. Uh, Right after service today. So, ladies only, Mike. No snacks for you today. By the way, Brian, I was just kidding. I was going to do all the work today, believe me. I've been backsliding there. Romans chapter 8, and we'll get there fairly soon. We only have one law here, of course you know, and that's just be attentive. Among my first strong inklings about the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the concept used to be what the old theologians called a phantasm. That means it's an unclear thought. You get the thought and intuition, but it's not clear yet. And they used to call it a phantasm. It was an unclear concept to me about how universal the salvation was that God wrought in Christ. But the first inkling came to me, and I just kind of looked over some of the notes from 2010. In the summer of 2010, I was studying the prologue of the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses, and that's where the first thought hit me, an inkling, a hint. And it says simply, In the beginning the Word kept on being, and the Word kept on being in company with God, And God kept on being the word. He kept on being in the beginning with God. Everything came into being through him. We might call today's message a brief history of everything, all things. Everything came into being through him. Without him, not one thing that became ever came into being. And then if you jump to John 1.14, this is where I got bowled over. And this this is what started for me a radical revolution in the grace of God. It says the word became flesh. The word became flesh. With that earth-shaking declaration, it dawned on me that God, through John, did not write the word became human. It didn't say that. It said the word became flesh. The eternal word, God himself, who always was, always will be, and is now, became. And so everything that came into being by him became, and he entered into everything that came into being by becoming. Now, the scripture uses the word flesh here, that which the word became, not only to refer to human beings, but to all living beings. 1 Corinthians 15.39 puts it this way. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. The eternal word, who always was and always kept on being, now became. The eternal word, God himself, became flesh. In becoming flesh, the eternal word through whom all things came into being came into all things. And this is what was dawning on me. At first, it was like looking at an old brass mirror that was corroded. It was an unclear image. Again, Aquinas and other old-time theologians called that a phantasm. It wasn't yet clear. It was gazing as in a glass and as as in a mirror. Then I saw this thing face to face. It was a realization at first, a hazy mental image that I could not even put into words. It was too big. And I eventually would put this phantasm into these words, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. The word incarnation is a correct term used theologically. It means enfleshment. It didn't say inhumanization or inhumanment, but incarnation or enfleshment. 
Now, don't get me wrong. It's true that when the word became flesh, it was through a miraculous conception in the Virgin Mary and by a birth through which a human male came into the world. Jesus Christ is rightly called the man, Christ Jesus. And he's the only mediator between God and all of humankind. Because now, in his incarnation, he's equal to God and he's also equal to all humankind. And it also says that he gave himself a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. Jesus Christ is a man as well as God. So old Thomas Aquinas was right when he said, although the human nature in Christ is something new, the subject of human nature is not new, but eternal. But I take that to mean is when it's said, you read in the four gospels that Jesus did such and such a thing. He cast out demons in anticipating his kingdom. He healed the sick. He ate with sinners, with the disfranchised, with those that the culture of the time rejected. He forgave sins. He suffered. Whatever it is, the subject of the sentence, for example, he drove out demons, is a divine and eternal subject. It's God acting. In Jesus, God is the subject of a human action. I know that sounds a little heavy, but that's the fact. When Jesus did something, it was God acting as a human subject. But the main point is that the incarnation was the act of the eternal word, who always was and always will be God, becoming flesh. Way back in July, I think it was, of 2010, I had the inkling. Not quite an insight, an inkling before an insight. That's what happens first, an inkling, then an insight. The phantasm, but not yet a clear word. And that was that the incarnation meant that Jesus Christ was at least in the beginning of a process of comprising everything in himself. And by doing that, setting everything that was wrong right, reconciling, redeeming, liberating, transfiguring everything, all things in all their times. Now, speaking of all things, it's the Greek word ta-panta, ta-panta. I think, what's his name? The famous guy that just passed away recently did a brief history of everything. Well, this is a theological history of everything. Tapanta is the Greek word or the Greek phrase. Paul uses it in a whole lot of places, and it's also used elsewhere. Let's consider that term all things like Paul uses it, for example, in Romans. To Paul, all things, tapanta, means all of created reality, what John calls everything that came into being, that didn't exist before, but came into being, came into being by him. That includes time in all of its progressions. It includes all of creation, all beings in all of their times. Everything. And it means everything without exception. This little article, the all things, means everything without exception. A brief history of everything. You've had it already. A prime example of this term, and this is where we're going to be going as a congregation, is Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. That's going to be the central verse of a huge movement of the word in this congregation. In Ephesians 1.10, it says that God's intention is described as summing up everything, tapanta, summing it all up. That means all of created reality in all of its times in Christ. And that's of momentous importance, Ephesians 1.10. Now, we're back to Romans 8. In Romans 8, we're going to see not only the stretch of what God redeems, which is all creation in all of its times, but there's an interconnectedness of everything. Now, just follow me, because this is really kind of basic, even though it sounds maybe 
fancy word wise, but it is very important to understand that all things, and that includes all times, are interconnected. We call the progress of time history. History is an interconnection. It's not separate events all chopped up. It's an interconnected thing. All things in the universe are interconnectedness. There is an interconnectedness in tapanta. It means everything is connected. And in Romans 8, let's look at verse 22 to 23 to start with. For we know, says Romans 8, 22 and 23, we know that all the creation, all the creation laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs until now. That means creation isn't what it's going to be. It isn't what it ought to be. It isn't a place where everything is set right yet. And it means that creation is, has no possibility of an independent existence without its creator. That's also true for every human being. It just sometimes takes us a while for that to dawn on us, that we cannot exist apart from our creator. And our Redeemer. We know that all the creation laments and suffers the agony of birth pangs until now. But not only is that so, listen to what he says now. On top of that, we, that is, those of us who have received the first fruits of the Spirit, groan deeply in ourselves. There's something that we still anticipate. Everything isn't right yet. Awaiting eagerly the enjoyment of the full privileges of our sonship or the adoption, that is, the redemption of our bodies. In other words, the resurrection in which our bodies are transfigured, our bodily form is transfigured and transformed and liberated into what is called glorious freedom. There we understand clearly that we are connected to Christ and we have the first fruits of the spirit of Christ. And we're also connected with the creation because we groan like the creation groans. We also groan within ourselves just like the creation groans in anticipation of a coming universal liberation and transformation, which the Bible predicts all throughout from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, where the last word in the Greek Bible is all and so this the point that i'm making today is that when god the eternal word became flesh he entered into the interconnectedness of everything of all created reality and that can't happen without something happening to everything ultimately so we're connected to Christ. Our lives are hid with Christ in God, says Colossians 3.3. 3. And we're also part of the interconnectedness of everything because God, the eternal word, entered into the interconnectedness of everything when the eternal word became flesh. So what happens to the incarnated word also happens to all the interconnected universe of proportionate being. When Jesus screamed... From the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was at that moment, among other things, sharing the birth pangs of the whole creation. He had entered into the interconnectedness of everything. He was experiencing the screaming of the creation in birth pangs. A creation that is frustrated because it cannot exist apart from its creator. To experience a moment apart from one's creator is to experience what we would call God-forsakenness, which is what Jesus experienced for us. Not only then does all the creation groan in this expectation, we groan with it. As we await the change which comes with our bodily resurrection. And that enables us to fully experience the kingdom of God, which we only have hints and inklings of now. 
So not only does all the universe groan, and we with it, but now we've learned the Holy Spirit himself, God, within us and within creation also groans. If you look to Romans 8, you'll see that. Romans 8, 26, the second part of the verse says, but the Spirit pleads or intercedes for us in behalf of us with groans too deep for words. Imagine God sharing the groaning of the creation. Imagine Christ sharing the birth pangs of creation. Imagine us connected not only to all things, but also connected to the creator and the redeemer of all things. Because the incarnation of the eternal word, God was becoming interconnected with the interconnectedness of all things. So that when all of creation is finally transfigured, that's the promise of the scriptures. It's called universal restoration in Acts 3.21. All the prophets from the beginning spoke about it. I wouldn't want to argue with that trend. There's a lot of trends going around today. You've got to be in vogue or hip or say something right or say something wrong. But the, chain, but the trends change in a week. The trends of the prophets to predict a universal restoration has been from the beginning. And I'm in that trend. So if you want to be in vogue, get with it. Wake up, get woke, and get with it. You hear that? Wake up. Did you hear that? I'm glad. I'm very glad. See, I help with your attentiveness. Because the incarnation of the eternal word, God was becoming interconnected with everything. So that when all creation is finally transfigured, you know what the scripture says happens in 1 Corinthians 15, 28? God will be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 28, the favorite verse of the patristic theologians in the first eight centuries of the church. The favorite verse, eschatologically for Jürgen Moltmann, my favorite verse too, because it goes further than any other prediction of the scripture, God being all in all. And this happens to fit elegantly into our present doctrine, which I'm doing for the third time today. It's called pro-meity, pro-meity. This would fit in our generation because it says pro-me. It means God is for us. It means if you take God's name God and you also name him God for us, it can't be separated. God is God for us and he can't be other than for us. He can't be other than in solidarity with all things. He can't be other than in representation of all things. He is for us. The names, to make it simple, the names God and God for us are one name. You can't separate God from God for us. And as we're going to learn in Romans 8.35 and again in 39, you cannot separate us. And that means all creation from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The us there isn't for a small elect few. The us there is us, all things, all people, for every, forever. All of us throughout all of time. God is for his own creation. And we've learned this from Romans 8.28. We exegeted it and expounded it in a way I've never heard it. And I'm amazed. Not because I expounded it. But because of the insight that the Holy Spirit gave us on this Romans 8.28. We're going to look at it briefly before we close today. Nothing can separate the entire universe and all of its created beings from the love of God in Christ Jesus and we just happen to be included in that assur assurance. Nothing can separate you and I from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God acts solely and exclusively in the best interest of all the universe and all of humankind. He is not passive, but he's active in all of the cosmos, in all of history, to bring about the ultimate good to all of creation. From the angels to the animals, from the animals to the amoeba. His intention is entirely benevolent, straight through. The incarnation is a profound proof of divine 
Promeity. See, I'm teaching deep theology, but it really isn't that tough. It's a principle here. The incarnation, the becoming flesh of the eternal word, is proof, one of the primary proofs of divine promeity, of universal divine promeity, that God is for everything that came into being through the word. He is for it all. The incarnation is a part of the advent of Jesus Christ, which culminated with his passion, his crucifixion, which is a horrible death, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation, and his glorification, which leads inescapably to the glorious transfiguration of all things. When Jesus was momentarily transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, even his garments were transformed as the disciples saw it. And the universe is pictured as a garment that God wears, like a garment of light. So the whole universe is also yet to be transformed when Christ appears in his epiphany and all things are changed. And not only that, and this is, this, this is what is, goes even further, all things in their transformation even means the transformation of evil into the supreme good by the mysterious law of the cross. The mysterious law of the cross. It's all connected to the cross of Christ. Now, I'll take you a couple different places. Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Look it up on your own again. Read it carefully sometime. The apostle made the connection between the incarnation and universal salvation. I didn't see it before. I started to see it in July 2010. I'm radically convinced in 2019. It's extremely clear. In Philippians 2.7, he speaks of the incarnation, the becoming of man or the becoming of flesh in which he became the likeness of sinful flesh. In 2.8, even more importantly, it talks of Jesus' obedience to the Father. What was he being obedient to? The Father's will that all would be saved. He was obedient to that will. You're not saved because you made a decision. You're saved because God made a decision. And Christ made the decision. The only human decision that is made for your salvation was the decision of the human Jesus Christ, who was one with the decision of the Father to save all of humankind by his action on the cross. That's the gospel. And I don't hear it preached very often. And I never hear it preached on channel what's-its-name. Now, we have offerings here. It takes about five minutes. The TV shows that you see that don't even preach the gospel having a month-long fundraising. For a month, plant your seed. Yeah, plant you. He speaks. In 2.8, of Jesus' obedience, in 2.9, he speaks of the exaltation of Jesus that implies his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification. And in 2.10 and 11 of that same passage, he speaks of the universal genuflection and acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. The universal acknowledgement. The act of the obedience of Jesus Christ to the death of the cross bring Romans in now. There's power in that connection. The scriptures are also interconnected, all of them, and they're one unit, one major narrative. The act of obedience of Jesus to God the Father to the extent of death by crucifixion, according to Romans 5.19, resulted in the righteousness of many Many, it resulted in many being made righteous or justified or rectified, set right, who were once wrong. Many. But you know what else? If you go from Romans 5.19 back up a little bit into 5.18, the many equals all are made righteous by the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's grace. The actions of every knee bowing, every knee genuflecting. The action of every knee genuflecting. 
and every tongue acknowledging Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, to be Yeshua, Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, is not an act of forced allegiance. It is a spontaneous act of praise, as Paul made clear in Romans 14, 11. There he makes a connection between a prophet, Isaiah 45, 23, and the psalmist in Psalm 150, verse 6. Last verse in the Psalms. Last verse in the Psalms. What's it say? Let everything that has breath praise Yahweh. That means everything that has breath will acknowledge that the God Yahweh The creator of all is one Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth, to the glory of God the Father. Paul blends these two together. You don't see it when you read it, but you see it if you understand this. Paul makes a connection in Isaiah 45, 23, in Psalm 150, in verse 6, and he links the confessing by every tongue with the praising of Yahweh as Yeshua, by everything, everything praises him. That's why the scripture says the trees clap their hands, the mountains sing, the rivers are living. Everything praises him. Everything that has breath voluntarily praises him. Everything with the breath of life. It's an act of universal praise and worship and thanksgiving In the day when the nine lepers joined the tenth, who already said thank you. It's when workers flood in to be paid who have only worked an hour, along with those who worked all day long. Because the wages are calculated not on the basis of work, but on the basis of grace. It's when all the universe comes home. It's an action that means the universal homecoming of all people, all beings, all the universe in all of its times, according to Romans 11.36. It's an act and an action that takes place when everything that has breath or neshema, the breath of life, everything, when all flesh, he became flesh, when all flesh, I'll pour my spirit out on all flesh. When all flesh, having the outpoured spirit, sings praises to God the creator and redeemer who through Jesus Christ will have become all in all. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. Tack that to your fridge. You might not even want to eat that piece of pie. You say, this is so good, I don't need to eat. Jesus said that. His disciples said, you must be hungry by now. He said, I got meat to eat, food to eat, you know nothing about. But we're not going to market that as a new diet. I told you last week I studied four diets and concluded I can't eat anything. So you'll die. So God did this. How did God do it? By sending his own son, Romans 8, 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh. But his flesh wasn't sinful. It was just like he looked like every other person. In the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, the scripture says, that means for the putting away of sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. What flesh? The flesh that the eternal word became. By incarnation. Talking gospel here. Romans 8.3. Now look at Romans 8.31 to 32. What can we say against these things? What kind of argument can we put against this? Preacher. Teacher. Minister. Pope. Cardinal. Monsignor. Evangelist. What kind of argument are you going to put against this? Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God who justifies. He only acts benevolently. It's Christ who died, as it goes on to say. But Romans 8.31 says, 
What can we say against these things? This verse, 831, means that there are 217 verses behind it in Romans and 217 verses ahead of it in Romans, which means this is right at the dead heart and center, which is really a living heart and center of Romans. God is for us. Who can say anything against these things? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. What can we say against these things? Answer, nothing. If God is for us, that means if God is for us in all these ways that we've been listening since Romans 1.1, if God is for us in all these ways, and he is, says the Greek construction, who can be effectively against us? The answer, nobody. Since indeed God did not, look at verse 32, God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over for us all. What word is that? All? For us all. For us all. You say, why are you yelling? Because some are sleeping. Awake. And rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You might be surprised. Christ will shine on you. As he will shine on all. Again, Romans 8.32. Since indeed God did not spare his very own son like he spared Abraham's son Isaac on Mount Moriah. He didn't spare his own son. But freely handed him over for us all. How will he not with him freely give us All things. There it is again. All things. Notice here the conjunction, the interconnectedness here of God being for us and God not sparing, but giving his very own son for us all. And note how that connects with the word ta-panta, All things, everything. And notice once again, all things, a few verses back in Romans 8, 28. Look at this, 8, 28. Always misquoted because everybody wants to quote it as everything working together for me, pro me, pro me. Well, you happen to be, you little old me and you happen to be a tiny little speck and part of what everything is working together for good for everything that God ever created in all of its times, including angels that fell, who are transformed into the supreme good by the mystery of the cross. Is that too much for you? Good. We'll fan it out. On top of that, Romans 8, we know for sure. That word oida means we know and there's no argument about it. We're convinced. There's people that call themselves hopeful universalists. Well, I hope that's true. And I went from hopeful, that's a phantasm, to downright convinced. In other words, damn sure. I'm damn sure there ain't no damnation. To everything that's in Christ Jesus and everything's in Christ Jesus. So, On top of that, we know for sure that for those who love God, we proved that phrase to mean everybody because when God pours out his love, it's his love for you and your love for God. Ultimately, then, the universal gift of God's love is for everybody. We proved that. That's in previous messages. I recommend them. You can listen to them. We know that for sure those who love God, that is those whom God loves which is everybody, I proved that in the scriptures. I don't have to do it again today. He is working together in all things. It doesn't say he's working all things together. All things already are together. The working together here is God, the triune God, the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're the ones working together in all things. You see, they're in all things. God is in all things because the word became flesh. 
God entered the interconnectedness of everything, so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working in concert together toward one end, and the end that they're working toward together is the ultimate good. One more word I'm going to write up here in the Greek. The ultimate good. So on top of that, we know for sure that those who love God, he is working together all things benevolently and beneficently toward the ultimate good. And then Paul goes on to say, and this is how I translated it for clarity, by those whom God loves, I mean those who are called according to his purpose. His purpose is universal grace. He's talking here about everybody and everything. Everything works together for the good for everything. Because God entered the interconnectedness of everything when Jesus became flesh. So, Romans 8.32, since in God, again, let's look at it again. God did not spare his only son, but freely handed him over for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Here's two questions, then we'll close. What is the ultimate good? It's the word agathon in the Greek. Very important word in the scripture, agathon, or agathon, accent there. That's how you pronounce, you go by the accents. Agathon. If you have a friend named Agatha, then that friend's name means the ultimate good, agathon. He is working everything toward, the word that precedes that is the word ice or ace, toward the ultimate good. What is the ultimate good? What is the absolute good, is what I'd ask. Well, the answer is found when the rich young ruler came running up to Jesus and said, good master, what must I keep on doing to have the life of the coming age? And Jesus said to him, why are you calling me good? You're calling me good in the absolute sense because he says there is no one good agathon except God only except only God so the rich young ruler we know was right to call him good but Jesus just wanted to know what are you calling me good for who you go around calling people good master good teacher he's a good man he's a good friend or are you talking to me in the absolute sense and that's Matthew nineteen eighteen, Luke eighteen nineteen, also According to Romans 8.28, God is working together in all things. The t- again, the together there isn't all things together. It's God together, Father, Son, and the Spirit working together in the interconnectedness of everything to bring about a result that redeems and transfigures everything in its interconnectedness. So if you follow this, this it's going to reach a climactic moment here. And I think it might bowl you over if you think about it, not only today, but in the future. He, I hope he doesn't hit you while you're driving. I've had people tell me sometimes they'll be listening to a message and that insight will f- finally hit them and they swerve. So don't do that. And don't text and drive either. No matter how important it is, I've got to really get back to them. No, you don't. Now, God is working together in all things toward the ultimate good. The ultimate good, then, must be the absolute good, and that's God. God himself. Remember Dionysius, the Areopagite? I quoted him again this week. He said, let us move on to the name good, which the writers of the Bible gave to God. They call the divine subsistence itself goodness, he said. This essential good, by the very fact of its existence, extends goodness into all things. God, who is good, by necessity has to extend his goodness into all things because God happens to be love. Love not only in his essential being, but in his action. His act is only, he's got one act. He takes it on the road. The act is love. This is to be the case when 1 Corinthians 15, 28, God comes to be all in all. The ultimate good is God being all in all. This is also known as the new creation of all things. Look, I'm making all things new. 
That's what Jesus says essentially from the cross. And when he said, to tell us die, he said, it is done. Resurrection necessarily follows. If you see the way God sees it, if you see the way God sees it, you'd see it already done. And your hope would be certain. So what does it mean that God who didn't spare his son but freely gave him up for us all will freely give us all things? That's the second thing. If he will freely give us all things, what does that mean? It means that he gives us the new creation of all things. A vast and infinitely expanding glorified universe which God himself inhabits. In other words, he pours the new wine, which is you, into a new wine skin, which is the universe. The new you can't be poured into an old wineskin. You just bust the universe wide open. So God makes the universe anew, too, so he can pour the new wine, you, into new wineskins, the universe. And that's all things. It means that he gives us the new creation of all things. And this will be the ultimate fulfillment of what Jesus promised his disciples. In other words, right now, you're in career training. God has a career for you in the new creation that will boggle your mind that you can't even imagine. And even those without careers are being prepared for careers in the new creation that are absolutely mind-boggling. And there's a big universe, and it's always expanding The Bible said long before physicists discovered the expanding universe that it's stretched out. God stretched it out. And Hebrews 1 says it was like a garment. Psalm 105, 25 to 27. Psalm 104, 2. And Isaiah also says the same things. He stretched it out. That means the universe is ever expanding and it will always ever be expanding infinitely because the scripture says of the increase of his government, there will be no end. The government that's on his shoulder is the cross of Christ that he bore to Calvary's hill in which he transformed evil into the supreme good. That government that that transformed evil into the supreme good will be upon his shoulder forever, and that government will have no end. It will increase forever because it will always be over the expanding universe. So there's a lot of places to go, people to meet, and things to do. Yet to do. And so, what's coming into fulfillment here is what Jesus said to his disciples. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, that you are in me, and that I am in you. In that day, the day of eternity, 2 Peter 3.18, when all creation experiences the absolute fullness of joy and life. When all human beings will know that Jesus and the Father mutually indwell each other and that all human beings will mutually indwell Jesus who is in the Father and in whom is the Father. This is none other than the coming of God to be all in all. When the triune God indwells all things, everything, and all things indwell the triune God, that includes indwelling the past which God rectifies in his presence. It includes the future. God is already present to your future in Christ. God is already present to this being all in all. Because, and I started out with phantasm or unclear image becoming a clear word, an inkling becoming an insight. The same is true in 1 Corinthians 13, which says, you will know because you will know as you are known. You will know because you will know even as you are known by God. We look, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, in a not so clear mirror. But then we'll see face to face. It's kind of like what death is. You're looking at a mirror And you don't quite see who you are, what you are, what you were designed for, what's your career in the new creation. Then you see a vague face over your shoulder. 
And it's vague. And it's something to do with someone who's familiar to you, but not so familiar. Someone who is other than you, but not so other. And then he taps you on the shoulder. And death is when you turn around and see him face to face. You see, death's been defeated by the mystery of the cross. Even that evil has been transfigured into the ultimate good. Death. Hey, death. Talk about trash talk. Hey, death, where's your sting? Hey, Sheol. Hey, hell. Where's your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. To hell with death and to hell with hell. Go to hell, hell, God said. So hell went to hell. So if the next time one of your friends gets really mad at you, as they do when they hear this doctrine, they say, go to hell. Just say, I can't. And then be very kind to them and say, you can't either. So when we see him, we'll be like him, says the scripture. Because we're going to see him in his essence. Even theologians know who he is, but nobody knows what he is exactly. They say God is love, but what that means is still escapes us in its depth, in its breadth, its height, its livingness. But we will see what he is then. As we do not and cannot now. I want to close with something I read from Dallas Willard. He wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. All this is is a divine conspiracy. It's a conspiracy. Yes, the deep state. You know what the deep state is? God at work in all creation. See, sometimes you have to be still to hear his voice because his voice is voiceless. It's a still, small voice. But we've got all these devices that block it out. We got all these thoughts and anxieties that block it out. The reason I'm preaching you this message today is because I've been still. Because I heard a still small voice say, be still and know that I am God. That's the voice. Dallas Willard wrote this. He did a translation of Revelation 22, 4, and 5. And it goes like this. And they shall live with his face in view. Speaking of God the Father. They meaning humanity. And they, and that they belong to him will show on their faces. That they belong to him will show on their faces. It does now just a little bit when you know you belong to him. It kind of shows on your face because you have joy about it, peace and assurance. You might even start loving people that are unlovable and having compassion for people that you never really cared about or had compassion for because you were narcissistic, which means lacking empathy. You change. Darkness will no longer be, he says. They will have no need of lamps or sunlight because God the Lord will be radiant in their midst and they will reign through the age of the ages. Living with God's face in view means belonging to God and the Lamb gladly. And it shows on our face. Psalm 34, 5 says, They looked toward him and their faces were radiant. Their faces will never blush with shame. Then again in Psalm 4, 6, it says, The light of your countenance, O Yahweh, is signed upon us. The light of the face of God, even now, is signed upon us. It means that he's shown us great favor by making us into his image and his likeness. As Ephesians 2, 7 to 8 says, In the coming ages, God will exhibit the immeasurable riches of his grace That is how great his kindness is toward us who are incorporated with the Messiah, Jesus, which will be all. For we have been saved and secured by grace through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to the extent of death. We've been speaking of face to face with God. All the way from the beginning of John's gospel, I'm kind of summing up where we've been since 2010. 
the face of God as it shines from the beginning of John's gospel to the end of John's apocalypse. It shows that the fullness of grace and truth, which is reality itself, is in Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. And from his fullness, says John 1.16, all of us have received grace on top of grace on top of grace. Endless grace. Like all of Paul's epistles, all of them, which are enclosed in an inclusio of grace. They begin with grace, they end with grace. So rev the book that we studied for several years. There's an inclusio of grace. In Revelation 1-4, John to the seven assemblies in the province of Asia, grace to you and peace from he who is and always was and who is coming. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful martyr, the firstborn out from the dead ones and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And Revelation twenty two twenty one ends with this word, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. So I agree with Willard's conclusion and conclude with his words. He said, and boy, is it an understatement. Our human life, it turns out, is not destroyed by God's life, but is fulfilled in it and in it alone. Father, we thank you for the assurance of your universal promeity, your universal being for all of creation. And we pray that you'll continue to teach us these things by your spirit because a man saying these things, a man reporting these things, teaching these things, mining these things out of the scripture cannot communicate them in their full power and efficacy. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. Only the Holy Spirit can illuminate us and enlighten us with these things. Only the Holy Spirit can take a vague, obscure conception turn it into a bright and sparkling insight that transforms even now and even gives us an experience of the kingdom of God even now an inkling of what will one day be a glorious transformation may the Holy Spirit then cause this hope to overflow in us so that it doesn't just become a maybe prospect but a certainty which we lay hold of and that affects our lives in a way that makes us courageous in the face of men and circumstances and confident in the face of God and in the presence of Christ. We ask these things, not on our own merits because we have none of ourselves, but in the merits of our Savior, our Lord, the one who, to whom belongs the glory both now and to the day of eternity, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.